Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. It's, it's so hard to get it together. What do I mean by that? We exist in so many different pieces. There's our inner life. There's our family life. There's our work life. There's our relationship with Hashem. There's, there's all the different pressures. And it's, it's so easy to go through life in, in a million different pieces. And so I'm bringing that up because coherence and, and just pulling all the separate aspects ourselves into one real entity, one coherent entity that, that everything can stem from is, is so important. And it has just vast implications on the life we lead and, and, and the choices, making good choices in our life. And so what I would like to suggest is that this is one of the deeper things that the Torah is actually discussing when it's talking about making the Mishkan. Now, of course, the Mishkan, there's sort of an old-fashioned translation for it, the, the tabernacle. I don't know if anyone uses the word tabernacle anymore. But but apparently, when they were making all the English translations, they, they were using this word. But but anyway, so so the Mishkan was the shul. It was the synagogue, you know, in, in, the, in the desert. And amazingly, not only was it the prototype for the Beis Hamikdash, the, the the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, but it 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 was a traveling, it was a traveling headquarters for the revelation of godliness in this world. Wow, that's a big thought. But just one of the unique aspects of it was that it could be taken apart when we went from location to location, and then put back together. So. So there's so much, there's so much right there. Let's, let's just unpack that just a little bit, just a fraction. There's a larger idea here about how we have to take the different pieces of ourselves and put them together in a beautiful way. So, so let's go a little bit deeper because the rabbis explain that the Mishkan wasn't, wasn't just, you know, a place to pray and to bring offerings to God, a place of miracles. By the way, the Ramban gives amazing explanations of what's going on with it, and Godwin will get to those. But, but the rabbis explained that the Mishkan was actually a microcosm, a miniature of each individual person. The Ramban says that the Mishkan was an ongoing recreation of the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai. And that very much ties together with the idea that we would take apart the Mishkan and it would travel with us because the Torah is absolutely everywhere. Remember, a very important point that I stress again and again is the Torah is not a book. The Torah exists in book form but the Torah is the fabric of the universe itself. Or as Reb Shlomo puts it so beautifully, when we keep the Torah, we dream God's dreams and we pray God's prayers. And then furthermore, this idea that the Mishkan is a miniature of us and that the heart of the Mishkan was the Holy Ark. Well, our heart has two chambers. And the rabbis say that one chamber is the first five tablets of the Luchos, and the second chamber is the second five tablets of the Luchos. So do, do you see the parallel? The Mishkan is a miniature of us, and the heart of the Mishkan is the Torah itself, and our heart is in the shape of a Torah. As we say again and again, the deeper you study Torah, the more you see the Torah is worlds within worlds within worlds within worlds. And we connect it all together by saying, Shema. when we declare God's oneness, God's oneness expands from the most far out, wide-reaching places in the universe 
And then it compacts itself all the way down to not just this universe. The universe is not the end result of the tzimtzum, of this divine contraction of energy and light into the universe. The human being is the final tzimtzum because each person has within themselves the entire universe. So, so the Mishkan was you, and you're the Mishkan. So with that in mind, isn't it interesting, this idea that we were taking it apart and putting it back together wherever we went. Every time we got to a new place, we take it apart and put it back together. Now, just think about the implications if you're talking about yourself going from new situation in life to new situation in life. You don't want to be the old you in the situation that requires you to be the new you, right? Well, how do you not be the old you in the situation that requires you to be the new you? Well, I'm going to tell you, you got to take yourself apart and put yourself back together again. Not wild? Not wild? Let's go even deeper. Where's the first mention of Avraham Avinu? our Holy Father Avraham in the Torah. So, you know, if you're, if you're a beginner, but you know a little something, you'll say, Lech Lecha, right? That's, that's, that's where Avraham starts. Then if you are a little bit more of an expert, you'll say, oh, it's actually at the end of the previous Parsha. It's in Parsha's Noah. Okay, <clears throat> that's pretty good. But we have to look to the Zohar to see the real first mention of Avraham. And it's actually the very first Pusuk <clears throat> after the seven days of creation are mentioned. The Torah uses the word Behibaram. And in the context of that, that verse, it's actually chapter 2, verse 4 of, of Breshis. It's talking about just a summation how God created, you know, the heavens and, and the earth, you know, just a single verse that just is a recapitulation of the seven days of creation that we've just read about. But it's got this very interesting word, Behibaram, in it. And the Zohar mentions that if you rearrange the letters of that word, it actually spells Be-Avraham, meaning to say for the sake of Avraham or the sake of the righteous person, God created the heavens and the earth. So I had a question on this, which is that, okay, I get it. The, the, the righteous individual is the foundation of the world. I get it. I get it. But if that's the case, why not just spell Avraham's name like, just spell it out in the proper order? Why does it have to be rearranged? And then I'll tell you something. I was in Yerushalayim and we were celebrating my, my son's bar mitzvah my eldest son's bar mitzvah. And I got sick and I was lying in bed and I was in horrible pain, horrible, like writhing pain on the bed. And, and this Torah came to me at that moment, okay? An explanation to what I just said. Why is Avraham spelled out of order? Because you know what the mark of a righteous person is? He's willing to take himself apart and put himself together again in whatever pieces have to go first, given the new situation. Do you hear that? So let's look at the Mishkan again and how that's the model of a person. Constantly being taken apart and constantly being put back together again. So I once heard Rabbi Beryl Wine say something, and I don't remember the exact numbers that he used, but you'll, you'll get the idea. You'll get the idea. The numbers I'm going to use are going to express the basic idea. He said it's easier for a person in terms of raising themselves up spiritually, you know, in terms of Torah, to go from zero to 80%. It's easier to go from zero to 80% than it is to go from 80% to 100%. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Because you kind of think most people, what happens is if they go from zero to 80%, they convince themselves that they're done 
And to the extent that there are things that they're still not doing, they go, well, you know, I got this far. That's, that's a pretty great accomplishment. But that last stretch, that last stretch is really like that's when you're really scaling the mountaintop. And to be able to scale that mountaintop, you have to take yourself apart and put yourself back together again. That last stretch, you start to get to sheer cliff. Let me put it another way. I once heard Rabbi Edin Steinsaltz say something amazing. He was talking about how, how chametz is made. Now, of course, chametz is, is, is bread. And, and specifically, that, that's the word that's used for the bread that's not allowed on Pesach. Right? So you can't, you can't have any, any chametz in the, in the house. You, you can't ingest any chametz. Normally speaking, we have a concept in kashus called batol b'shishim. That means that, and you can't do this on purpose, by the way, but if it happens by accident, let's say you've got a pot of chicken soup and, you know, you got a little bit sloppy, basically, and one drop of milk falls into this pot of chicken soup. Now, again, you can't do this on purpose, but if it happened accidentally and there's 60 times the amount of meat as there is of the milk, then we have this concept to say that one in 60, the, the offending bit becomes nullified. And so the chicken soup would still be kosher. And you wouldn't say that you have to throw the entire thing out because now it's basar v'chalav, it's milk and meat, and you can't eat it and all the rest. So you can't have it anymore. No, because there's 60 to one, it's still good. Now, what's interesting about chametz and Pesach is, let's have this same, let's have this same example. Now, let's say it's not just a pot of chicken soup. Let's say it's a vat, right? You're cooking for a hotel or something like that. You've got an entire vat of chicken soup, and it's Pesach. And one crumb of bread falls into this giant vat. You've got you to get rid of the entire thing. Because the halacha is, the law is, that even a mashahu, which means the tiniest bit of chametz on Pesach, invalidates the entire thing. There is no concept of nullification. Okay, so that's, that's, that's very, very deep. But, but let me tell you why I'm bringing it up. How does, you know, because, because the difference is so fascinating. You know, we talk about timing and moments and, and things like this. You know, the difference between bread and matzah is very, very slight. It's basically the same ingredients. The difference is, is that bread, the flour, the dough, has a chance to rise for a longer period of time. And when it rises for a longer period of time, then all of a sudden, the matzah turns into chametz. Right? Now it's going to become challah. Another fascinating thing about making matzah is when you put it into the oven, you got to get it out by the 18th minute. If it stays in the oven longer, it turns into bread, which means matzah. You ready for this idea? Matzah is something that could have become chametz, but it was guarded and didn't become chametz. In other words, it's not like matzah is one thing and bread is another thing. <laughs> like you've got jello and you've got roast beef. They're two different things. Matzah and bread are two different things. They're not two different things. They're the same thing. Matzah is something that could have become bread and didn't become bread because you watched over it. And a lot of it has to do with the amount of time that's passing. You see... When we talk about taking ourselves apart and putting ourselves back together again, a lot of that is having to do with our personality traits. And the amazing thing is the Hebrew word for personality traits, right? Like your jealousy, your anger, your desires, all of these things, these are all under the Hebrew word called midos. Now, you ready for this? Midos doesn't mean personality. Midos means measurements. 
See, I'm so used to thinking of my personality, which is that I'm in a bad mood. Well, how long are you going to be in a bad mood for? Well, well, for as long as I'm in a bad mood. I'm in a great mood. What happened? I need a reason to be in a great mood? Like all these things, we tend to think of our moods and things like that as things that are without boundaries, without measurements. And yet the Torah says the opposite. <laughs> the Torah says, do you know what the word midos means? Midos means measurements. That means that, you know something? You're depressed. You, you experienced a disappointment. You know what? You got to be real. You got to be real. Experience that disappointment. But in measurements. Don't live in it. Don't live in it. Don't live in it. Now you're on to the next thing. But to be able to do that, you got to take yourself apart and put yourself back together again. Now listen to this. This is what Rabbi Steinsholt said. If you're kneading dough, as long as you're kneading dough, it doesn't have a chance to rise. So as long as you're kneading dough, it's now still in matzah territory. But if you stop working the dough, then it rises and becomes chametz. And of course, spiritually speaking, there's a time for chametz. But spiritually speaking, chametz is this like, it just gets all puffed up. And that correlates with the idea of our self-aggrandizement, meaning to say our ego, meaning to say that we're attributing power to ourselves that we don't have. Okay, that's puffed up bread. Whereas matzah is like super real. Matzah is just what it is. It's just like there's a God in the world and that's what it is. <laughs> One of his creations, right? So it's like living humility. In fact, the Ari and all of the Kabbalists talk about that matzah is like medicine for the soul. You eat matzah and it's just, it's just cleaning out your insides. Okay, so what's the teaching? The teaching is, is that as long as you're working it, it remains matzah. When you stop working it, it starts to take on this other quality of chametz. And so based on that, here's the teaching now. Rabbi Seinsholz said, there are certain things that we put in our heart at some point during our spiritual development, which was good for then, but we didn't continue to work with it. And now, from our present stage of spiritual development, it's chametz. That thing that we put into our heart, that's chametz now, because it was appropriate for us at one point in our life, and it's no longer appropriate for us now. It's a fascinating idea. But how do you uproot that? Because, you know, all the Rebbes are talking about when we're cleaning our houses and getting rid of the chametz, where's the headquarters of doing that? Our hearts, getting the chametz out of our hearts. But you know, sometimes when you're cleaning for chametz, you got to lift up the couch. You got to move up the. You got to move the couch, and you got to see what's under the couch. Because if you don't see what's under the couch, you're never going to get to the chametz. So, how does that work in terms of finding these things that were maybe at one point in our life appropriate for us, but are no longer appropriate for us? Well, that requires taking yourself apart. That interesting, like the Mishkan, like the Mishkan. You take yourself apart, and then you put yourself back together again. And that requires a level of work that is that last 20% that Rabbi Wan's talking about. That it's easier to go from 0 to 80 than from 80 to 100. Because there's a part of you that's saying, I've already got it right. I've already got it right. You know, I just have to tell you, one of the all-time best Torahs I ever heard in my life from the Katska Rebbe, which is in Kahelis Rabbah, it's, it says that an old person is like an ape. So... You know, 
we know that Jewish people respect old people. In fact, it's a halacha that you actually have to stand up when an older person enters into the room. Do you know that? You have to actually stand up. Because we have such regard for experience. And you know something? If you can make it through life, you get to your 70s, you get to your 80s, what you've gone through, what every single person has gone through and accomplished and triumphed over to get to that age, it's, it's appropriate for people to stand up for you. You know that? Okay. So if that's the case, then how can the rabbis be comparing an old person to an ape? And what does it mean, an ape? Why an ape? So the Kotzka Rebbe points out that, you know, it's the nature of an ape to imitate And in fact, this is something that's been observed by cultures throughout history, so much so that if you go into the dictionary, an English dictionary, and look up the word ape, it's not just the name of an animal, it's a verb, and it means to copy. Isn't that interesting? So even in English, this this concept, to ape one's gestures, has, has come across. Because this was like a universally observed phenomena that apes copy. Now listen to what the Katsuka Rebbe does with this. Remember, the teaching says old people are like apes. When you become old, you're like an ape. He says that it's the nature of a human being at some point to just start thinking, you know what, I got it right. And then they spend the rest of their lives as an imitation of themselves. That's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. Can you imagine? And people don't do this consciously. That's the thing. That's why it requires taking yourself apart and putting yourself back together again. Right? Thank God for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God that we've institutional place in the year, one of many places, by the way, but like really a place in the year where we go, okay, I'm not going to go another day without looking at every aspect of my life. But the idea is, it's so subtle. It's so subtle. It's so subtle. It's so subtle. You know, at a certain point, we get to that 80% and we hit that wall and we go, this is who I am. You know, what, what to me, one of the tragic things in relationships is when one person feels aggrieved legitimately by another, by their partner's actions, and their partner says, this is who I am. Like, can you imagine, like, walking around with, like, like stained, dirty, smelly clothes and proudly proclaiming, this is who I am? It's like, change your clothes. What's going on? This is who I am? It's horrible. But, but for a person to do that, then they have to start taking themselves apart, right? Like the Mishkan. Okay. So, so I want to go deeper now. Because the rabbis don't just compare the Mishkan to an individual. The rabbis compare the Mishkan to a microcosm of the entire universe. Which is amazing. Which is amazing. Which is amazing. And it says, the Medrash says, that when we finished creating the Mishkan, God celebrated like he did when he created the entire world. Isn't that something? Not only that, but the Mishkan was dedicated on the first day of Nisan. And as you know, in the Gemara, there's a debate, when was the world created? The first day of Tishrei, right? Which is our Rosh Hashanah, or the first day of Nisan? And they don't resolve that argument, by the way. So, so there's very much an opinion. And, and there are opinions that God created it in thought on the first day of Tishrei, the universe, and indeed on the first day of Nisan. That's Tosafos, by the way. So no less than Tosafos is talking about how the world was actually created the first day of Nisan. 
That's amazing. That's amazing. Because that's the day that the Mishkan was opened for business. And the Mishkan is a, is a, is a microcosm of the entire universe, which was created that day. Okay. So, so now listen to this. It wasn't actually created that day because everybody knows that Rosh Hashanah is the sixth day of creation, the day the human being was created. So isn't that interesting? Do you see the overlap there? That it's a miniature of the universe? Ah, but it was dedicated on the first day that human beings were created. So it's also a miniature of an individual. You know why? Because when you fix yourself, you fix the entire world. You see, we have a concept in Torah called Tzimtzum. And Tzimtzum, without going into all the depths of it, right? Basically, God is condensing an aspect of his divine light, and he's compacting this divine light into the physical universe. And we're always referencing Einstein when we talk about this idea that energy becomes mass. So this divine light is like the highest, purest, holiest energy. And God is turning that energy into the universe. He's taking energy and making mass out of it. Just a small aspect of God. Just his outer light, right? Just a little part of it. And that's what he creates the universe out of. Okay. So now listen to this. Before the first day of Nisan, on the 25th day of Adar, right? That's because the first day of Nisan is the sixth day of creation. Moshe Rabbeinu builds the Mishkan and then he takes it down. And then the next day he builds it again and then he takes it down. And then he builds it again the third day and then he takes it down. And finally on the eighth day, he leaves it out. Now we have, if we just said that the Mishkan is a miniature of the entire universe, the whole world, right? We have a teaching from the rabbis that God created and destroyed many worlds before he created this one. And isn't it amazing that there is Moshe Rabbeinu building and taking down the Mishkan each day, some say three times a day, by the way, leading up to it, finally opening up. It parallels this teaching that God created and destroyed many worlds before this one. And that's something. You know, I always like to quote the the Teferis Yisrael, one of our major uh, explainers of the Mishnah, of the oral law. In the 1800s, when they were first finding dinosaur bones, which to this day seems to be like a big challenge to the Torah, right? Do you know what his reaction, one of the great people of Israel, do you know what his reaction was when they found dinosaur bones? He was like, he was so happy, he rejoiced, because he said, we finally have physical evidence of the worlds that God created before this one. We finally have evidence of that teaching. Isn't that something? So we have, on the one hand, The Mishkan is you and me. And on the other hand, it's the entire world. And again, the teaching is when you fix yourself, you fix the entire universe. Now I want to go deeper. I want to go deeper. When my wife and I first got married, we, I grew up in apartments and, and for me, like living in an apartment is normal, but, but my wife, she grew up in, houses. So for her, living in a house was normal. (laughs) And so she was like, you know, we should live in a house. And I'm like, I I think we should live in an apartment. Like, what's wrong with an apartment? Like, that's, that's, that's just as good. Anyway, she won that argument. So, so we got this, we got this very small kind of like completely beat up kind of fixer upper. And the problem was, is that we didn't have the money to, to fix it up. So we, we had enough money to, to buy the fixer-upper, but not enough money to actually do any of the construction on it. 
And it just sat there. It sat there for almost a year and we couldn't get into the place because, because you know, we were stuck. And then finally we met this guy named Pablo who had a big sledgehammer. <laughs> and uh, we really liked him. And and we were thought we, we we didn't know what to do. We were so stuck, so we, we decided just to roll the dice. So we said, Okay, Pablo, do your thing. Just go ahead. And and I showed up and the whole front lawn was dug up. There was kind of like this like this this little pathway to the house that was dug up. There were walls that were collapsed. There was like this cloud of white plaster dust over the house. And I remember just standing there and going, it's so beautiful. And the reason why I felt that way was because progress was actually being made. Now, let me tell you something. There are 39 categories of work that went into building the base of Migdash. Okay? One of the categories of work is something called Cesar. And Cesar is a very interesting, very interesting idea. It is the idea of destroying. You're not allowed to destroy, but it's not just destroying for vandalism's sake, because it's a type of, it's a step in construction. It's destroying so that something better can come out of it. Do you understand? So that type of work can't be done on on Shabbos. And now I was thinking about that and listen to something. This is really, really deep. Cesar is not just a category of, 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 of one of the 39 types of work that was done on the construction of the Mishkan. In Hebrew, Cesar means concealed or hidden or secret. So do you understand when you put those two ideas together? Do you understand what that means? A lot of times we experience in our own life destruction, but there's really building that's going on behind the scenes. But what is actually going on is concealed and kept secret from us. Do you understand? There's a type of building which is called destroying. You're destroying in order to build something better. That's called Cesar, but that also means secret. And in our lives, sometimes things just completely from our perspective become destroyed. I had this. I had that. It's no longer there. But do you know what? Something is being built. It's not revealed to us in the moment, but something is being built. But can I tell you something? In order to have that perspective, we really have to take ourselves apart and we have to put ourselves back together again. Because one can only go through life like that if they have a good eye. You see, we work very hard on giving other people the benefit of the doubt. But what about giving God the benefit of the doubt? Do you know how important that is? And what's the secret to having the ability, the strength, the power to give God the benefit of the doubt? And it all boils down to this one thing. Understanding that God is good. And that everything that comes from God is good, even if it looks like mass destruction, even if it's massively hidden. But if we can see that goodness, if we can know that that goodness is there, then we can give everything the benefit of the doubt. Now, by the way, just so I'm communicating, I'm not talking about being a Pollyanna. And I'm not talking about looking at injustice that we can do something about and turning a blind eye to it and saying, oh, it it must be good. I'm not talking about being complacent about evil. Evil must be fought. But what I'm talking about is the fact that behind absolutely everything in our lives, at the root of the root of absolutely everything is God and that God is good. And if it's not revealed to us in the moment, it will become revealed to us. 
You see, there's another type of building. There's another type of building that we can do. And we started off by saying, how do I get all the different aspects of my life together? How do I create oneness in my life? I want to be one. I want my heart and my mind to be one. How do I do it? I want, I want my family to be one. I want my marriage to be one. I want the whole world. We're all God's children. I want the world to be one. So, you know, I'm always going back to it again and again. I can't escape this teaching because it's just, it seems to inform absolutely everything. The gematria, the numerical equivalent of the word love and the word one, ahava and echad, they're both 13. How do I create oneness in this world? What is the secret ingredient? And the answer is love. The answer is love. Love creates oneness. When there's love between us, there's oneness between us. That oneness becomes revealed. If I want to turn this entire world into a dwelling place for God, and by the way, this was the teaching from the Ramban that I was alluding to earlier. He points out a big question, and all of us experience this in one way or another. You know, the book of Breshis, Genesis, is filled with the most amazing stories. And Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says, God loves stories. You know that our whole lives are just stories. You understand that, right? That God is telling stories through our lives, with our lives. Isn't that awesome? And you get to decide what kind of story you want your life to tell through the choices that you make. Amazing. I, I, I'll tell you something that, that is really humbling. You're, you want to be humbled? You're, you're, you're something humble. Anyone who, you know, when you like really get into Shabbos, more for maybe men right now, although this could apply to women as well, it's you enter into this very <laughs> special zone among the Jewish people that's not, not very well attended, but it's really, you're really getting into the inner chambers of the Jewish people when you start attending Shalashudas, the third meal of Shabbos. And then it's a small crowd of people huddled over some herring <laughs> or, some, or some tuna salad and a couple of crackers. But it's really... It's a it's a beautiful it's a beautiful little little corner that exists among the Jewish people. The third meal, and that's that's where the diehards hang out. Okay, and at the third meal, they're often sponsored by people who have yard sites coming up. In other words, a person's father or mother, loved one, whatever it is passed away. So the custom is that you sponsor the Shalashudas, the third meal of Shabbos, the, the Shabbos before the Yartzai. That's an important thing to do, okay? Everyone should know that. And then the person who's sponsoring that, that week Shalashudas usually says a little bit of something about, you know, it's usually a parent, sometimes it's a grandparent, and, and they'll speak about their life. But here's the, here's the point. They speak for between two and five minutes. <laughs> this is not a hespid. This is not a eulogy that they give. It's not a one-hour slot. It is a short slot, which means a person's, let's say, 80 years, hopefully we should all live a long life to 120 in health and in strength, you can all say amen. Our lives are going to be boiled down to five minutes from our children. Maybe less, by the way. <laughs> and the question is, what are they going to say about you? <laughs> that, on average, and I've been to hundreds of these, okay? That, on average, usually leaves room for about one and a half stories about you. <laughs> and three to five adjectives. <laughs> what are they going to say? What story are they going to tell? So we get to choose on some level 
what story we want to tell with our own lives. Okay? So let's get back to the Ramban. You've got amazing stories. God loves stories. And then, then the book of Shmos, Exodus starts. And now we, we're, we're getting out of Egypt with miracles and wonders. And the sea is splitting. And the Torah is being revealed at Mount Sinai. And then this many hooks. This many planks of wood. <laughs> These color dyes. These animals to get the skins from, like all of a sudden it becomes this detailed like construction site and it remains that way more or less for the next book and a half of the Torah. Because Vayikra, Leviticus is all about what you do in that building, right? And it it's continues to be this incredibly specific, hyper-specific, technical like you know, blueprint to a building. And you're like, what happened to all the stories? What happened to the cloud that led us and then it became a cloud of fire at night? Well, where's all that stuff? Counting hooks for curtains, for goodness sakes. So the Ramban says, you know something? You think the story stopped? The story's getting deeper. You know what Hashem is telling us? He says... I'm creating the world. I'm creating the Jewish people. I'm taking you out of slavery. I'm showing that all of nature is just a subset of me, right? Everything is a miracle. I'm giving you the Torah. Now you have the tools to lock in to every aspect of creation. And now I want you to turn the entire world into a dwelling place for me. You're free. You have the Torah. You have this amazing ability right now. Now, reveal my oneness. Turn the entire world into a dwelling place for me. And that's what's going on with all these details about the Mishkan. And you know why there's so much specificity? Because how we treat each other in each individual circumstance that's pretty darn specific, isn't it? You know, I heard in the name of the Biala Rebbe something so interesting. There's six questions that were asked after we leave this world by the heavenly court. One of the questions is, did you make a, a set time for Torah study? A set time. Did you have a Seder, right? Ideally, we're learning a little Torah every, at least once a week. But in Hebrew, we say Torah bi'ito, Torah in its time. Now, you ready for this? The Biala Rebbe says, you know what Torah bi'ito means, Torah in its time? When you said over a Devar Torah to someone, did you say the right Torah in the right time? In other words, you know, when you want to attach a curtain to a rod, if you're using a plank of wood to do it, when there's a hook that's available? You understand? Every situation, every interaction requires a level of specificity and insight because with every interaction, what do you want to create? Togetherness. Okay, sometimes someone has to be yelled at, but those are the exceptions. And how do we create that oneness? How do we build that superstructure for this entire world being a dwelling place for God. With each interaction, we're creating oneness and we're assembling that vessel. Remember what the Magali Amukos says. Kli in Hebrew, which means vessel, Arushi Tevos, the first letters, Kli is Chaf Lamid Yud. That stands for Kohen Levi Yisrael. In other words, when we all get together as one, we create a vessel to hold God's oneness. But let me just end on this one thought, which is that God is already one, <laughs> and God already fills the world. So what are we doing? When we become one, we reveal God's oneness. And that's what it's all about. When we have a good eye 
and a good eye for each other. When we have a good eye for God, we reveal His oneness because we say, you know something, there's a purpose for absolutely everything. And even if it looks like destruction, even if it's a secret to us in the moment, there's something beautiful going on. Okay, bless us all that we should be just living construction sites, that we should be able to have the power and the insight to claw up that last 20%, right? That, that taking ourselves apart and putting ourselves back together shouldn't be a chore, but it should be a joy. Because if you're finding an imperfection within yourself, do you know what you're finding? You're finding gold. You're finding gold because you have an opportunity to turn that into something beautiful. Okay, that was the end of the talk. And I'd encourage everyone to try to check out the, the, the Sunday Live version of it because we have this wonderful community that's grown up from around the world and we, we discuss the talk and, and ask questions and people share insights and, and all sorts of beautiful things. So here are two little snippets from, from the post-talk talk. And one is uh, marriage advice and that runs for about seven minutes. And that follows with uh, a story about one of the great tzaddikim that you may or may not know about, but, but, but should definitely know about. Okay. So in, in looking for a, a marriage partner, my, my father was a psychologist and, and he used to love to tell this story, which is that, you know, back in the day, it still goes on a little bit, not so much anymore. You know, people, if they wanted to buy a chicken or something like that, they would go into the market and you'd buy a life and you'd bring it home and you'd shecht it. And that, that you know, that was commonplace. So anyway, a woman goes into this, this market and she's looking for a chicken and she's picking up the wing and she's like turning it around and she's like, you know, doing just the, 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 the closest inspection of every single aspect of every chicken part, right? And, and the, the, the guy who runs the market comes up to her and says, lady, could you pass such a test? So, so anyway... The idea is there has to be a certain degree of humility when we look for a marriage partner, which is, which is, I'm also broken. <laughs> I think that there's a presumption, and I don't think anyone does this on purpose, by the way. I don't think this comes from a, a deliberate arrogance. But we, when we're looking at another person's resume, so to speak, you know, their character traits and things like that, we, there is a hidden presumption there that we're perfect. <laughs> and, and that's not reality. That is, that's a very problematic premise. So if we start with the notion that, you know, we've also got our problems, and then hopefully I'm going to find someone who's got, you know, matching imperfections. <laughs> And, 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 and to proceed like that, I think that we lower the bar to a much more realistic place. I'll tell you another bit of marriage advice or marriage seeking advice, which is there's this thing that a lot, I, I've heard it over the years that people say, and I, I think that even if people don't say this, they think this, which is when they, when they think about someone who they might be interested in, in marrying, one of the tests they ask is, if I were stranded on a desert island with this person, could I, would I be happy? Like, could I, could I, you know, would that be a good thing? And the thing is, is that that's ridiculous because when you marry someone, your family doesn't disappear. His family doesn't disappear. Your friends don't disappear. His friends don't disappear. Your work doesn't disappear. Their work doesn't disappear. Your community doesn't disappear. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? That, that it's a fantasy, this idea if you were stranded on a desert island. Because the reality is, is that when you've got a relationship, especially if one or both parties work, how many hours of a day are they actually together? Not, not a lot. Not a lot. So 
My wife always gives this bit of advice, and I think it's a great bit of advice, which is, let's say a couple went out on a date. Say it's a first date. Did you have a good time? If the answer is yes, forget about all the the Rashi and the Tosafos, all the commentaries, but put all that aside. Bottom line, did you have a nice time? Yes? Then go out and on another day. Bottom line, on that second day, did you have a nice time? And keep on proceeding in that way <clears throat> until you break up or you're married. <laughs> Do you understand? Because there's another thing that I found, which is that people do this this crazy bit of math, which is, I need to find someone who is at exactly my spiritual level, right? And remember, the 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 mindset of the, the the Jew is the following: if you do one more mitzvah than me, you're obviously a fanatic, <laughs> and if you do one less mitzvah than me, like, ugh, you're like a heretic. Like, like, who are you? Like everyone, again, no one actually thinks this through. This is why it's important to take yourself apart and put yourself back together again. But we've got this presumption that we got it right. How did I do it? I don't know how I did it, but I got it right. Oh, you got it exactly right too? Oh, wow. What a coincidence. Everybody thinks they got it, their spiritual level exactly right. And it's so ridiculous because it's not about, it, 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 it has to be about growth. It's that last 20%. It's scaling from 80% to 100. That's, we can't be those people that get from zero to 80 and then we're like apes. Right? I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't want to live out the rest of my life as an imitation of who I once was. I, I think that's a horror movie. So, so the idea that we're going to find someone exactly at our level, and then let's just say, hypothetically, you were able to find that person who's exactly at your same spiritual level. But guess what? You might be going up and they may be going down. <laughs> they may have, they, you know, maybe you're meeting on the third rung but they used to be on the fifth rung and they're heading to zero. And you used to be on the first rung and you're heading up to 10. And so you're just meeting at this like happy intersection. But what about the future? So in other words, if you have the same vision for the life as your partner does or the person who you're interested in does, and that person, let's say they don't keep Shabbos, but they would like to keep Shabbos right? Or keep more Shabbos or whatever it is. So, so the idea is as long as you're moving in the same direction, it's okay if you're ahead of him or if he's ahead of you. It's okay. The point is in what direction are you moving in? That's what you want to find. And that simplifies everything because it takes the pressure off of, well, I'm currently doing this and I'm currently not doing that, right? Because it's all about your shared vision. Okay, I hope that's helpful. I think most of you have heard Reb Shlomo tell the story of the Holy Hunchback. And if you haven't, you should just go on YouTube and write the Holy Hunchback and, and Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach. Probably the Holy Hunchback will be enough to get you to there. And it's really one of the all-time most moving, amazing stories in the world. And I'm just, I'm not going to tell you the whole story. I just want to tell you the beginning of it is that Reb Shlomo is walking down the street in Tel Aviv and he sees Mamisha Hunchback sweeping, sweeping the streets of, of, of Tel Aviv. And so Reb Shlomo goes up to him and, and he asks him his name and he hears his accent that he's speaking with a, with a Polish inflection and he asks him about it. And then he says that he is from Piasesna. And he asks him, Do you, did you know the Piasesna Rebbe, the, the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto? And he said, yes, I, I, I was part of his, you know, he was like a father to all the children. And, and I was one of his students. 
And Reb Shlomo is like ready to collapse. He's like, my whole life, I wanted to meet someone who knew the PSS Rebbe. And then it goes on into the story, which is really the essence of it. So yesterday I got a little tiny bit of a taste of what Reb Shlomo maybe felt when, when, when he realized that he was talking to someone who was a student of one of the greatest Hasidic masters. At the, at the Happy Minion yesterday, we have someone who's visiting from out of town and, and you know, very generously, it was her birthday and she sponsored the Kiddush and she said a few words. And she said, I want to tell a story and I believe it's her great, great grandmother. And she said that she was from a village, right, in Poland. And, and back in the day, you know, when there was a situation, you would go to the Rav or you would go to the Rebbe. And her great, great grandmother, you know, by the way, this goes on to this day where like, like for instance, in the, in the Lakewood community, where you have men learning full time, a lot of the women are, are working and, you know, to support their husbands that they should be able to continue to, to, to learn full time. And, and this, when, this goes back, you know, for many, many, many generations. And so, so her great-great-grandmother or great-great-great-grandmother had a dry goods store to support her husband learning. And they, there was a partner, a man who was a partner there in this dry goods store. And a burglar came in, a thief came in and, 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 and shot her husband in the store, killed him on the spot in front of her, in front of her child. And, you know, in terms of sorting out all the things that you have to sort out, there's also the business and there's the partnership. And the last delivery of, of, of goods that came into the store, she had paid 100% for. And the partner had not paid the other 50%. And the partner said, you know what? I did pay. But he, but he hadn't paid. So she brought him to see the Rebbe. Now, who was the Rebbe? You ready for this? It was the Avstrafser Rebbe. Now, I've told you about the Avstrafser Rebbe on many occasions. And, and if I start into his biography, it's going to take up too much time right now. But let me put it to you this way. And this is documented, documented on top of documented. If I were to tell you that there was someone who fasted for 40 years, 40 years, he ate a little bit at night. You would say to me, well, yeah, maybe, maybe at the times of the Gomorrah or like thousands of years ago, there was such a person a hundred years ago. A little over a hundred years ago, there was such a man, the Avstraf Serebi. This is real and everybody in the world saw it. 40 years. I've been privileged to learn some of his Torah. An unbelievable holy genius, a, a tzaddik, a beyond, and I never hear his name brought up, ever. And here she says to me, my great-great-grandmother went to the Rav. This was, I, it may have been in Warsaw, by the way. The Avstraf Sarebi. I'm like, the Avstraf Sarebi. I was like shaking. Someone with a personal connection. And she brought the case before him and he said, you're right. He owes you the money and you have two choices. You can just let it go or I can force him to pay you. And she said, you know what? God forbid I should embarrass another Jew. And so even though she just lost her husband, she, she said, God is, I'm going to trust that God will provide for me. And, and the Rebbe said, you know what? Because you did this, I'm blessing you that all of your needs, all of your needs should be provided for.
And you know something? You get a bracha like that from the Avstraf Rebbe, she became rich. I heard this story with my own ears. This is a real, this is a real. And what did she do with that money? Well, one of the things that she did with that money was to make sure that the people of Avstraf never, never went without food for Shabbos. And that she did it in a very quiet, modest, secret. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.